might be the look you're going to use your glasses on the head look on purpose. It's a beret. <laughs> All that, right, way you, that way you can look inquisitive, like doubtingly at me <laughs> over over your frames. That's a teacher Ser- thing, you know. Seriously? <laughs> really? Yeah, exactly. I'll just talk like this the whole time. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Quiet Storm. I like it. Yeah. All right. We're lining it up. I'm rolling. Can I do the clap? Yeah, please. And I like it. Yeah. All right. So uh, you, uh, you, sir. You, sir. You, <laughs> you, sir. Are hypercranial. You are hypercranial. Yeah. And that thing is huge. And I'll tell you this right now. Um, when my, uh, I can't stop staring at it. It's uh, when my son was born. It's got its own weather system. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking you get your own Facebook page for that thing. I know. We should. Uh, we, so when, when my son was born. He also was uh, hypercranial. I'll tell you, well, first, my, my daughter was hypercracheal. My <laughs> son was hypercranial. Right. So Lily, when she was born, the, the her hiney crack went all the way up to about between her shoulder blades. Well, you're serious? Yeah, and she like had to grow into her crack. And so it so as she grew... <laughs> Thank God that doesn't happen like when you get old. I know. And it goes the other way. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then when Jones, uh, his head was so large that I'm not kidding. Like nurses would come by to look at it. And and uh, your wife still resents you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, yeah, so other nurse, so they had to go get like, you know, like the little little uh, kid cap hat thing didn't fit on. They had to get, they had like fashion other headwear for to keep him warm. <laughs> he was had a huge head and did, he had to grow into his head. Did they say he'll hey, cry himself to sleep on his huge pillow? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, man, you ready to do this thing? I'm ready. I'm ready. Eric now Jarvis. I know why Georgia resents you. It's the giant cranium. It's a, <laughs> it's the Eric Jarvis show. All right, Julio, you ready, brother? Let's do it, man. Let's hit that thing. Yeah, I need to be, yeah. We are rolling, brother. Nice. Feel it. I feel it. Yeah. There it is. Teach like a rock star podcast. Eric Jarvis joining us today, a renaissance man of sorts, of sorts, and uh, man, we're going to figure some things out. We have a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about teaching kids, education. We're going to we're going to we're going to figure the music business out. We're going to discover some things about Eric and, and his, uh, growing up uh, for him, what school was like for him, some teachers that had an impact on his life. And, uh, and brother, I'm glad you're here, man. I'm glad to be here. It's been a long time in the works. And because, you know, you have some scheduling stuff going on. You have yeah. some scheduling challenges. Well, you've got a lot of challenges. But right. one of your challenges right. is uh, scheduling. Man, you're, you're a busy guy. I am busy. you got a lot going on. Yeah. I should be rich, but I'm not. No. Yeah. Not yet. I spend a lot of time being busy, but yeah. All right, so we have, uh, but uh, here's here's the busy thing. The busy thing right now in your life is you got this whole Grammy thing going on. Yeah, because isn't it true, sir, <laughs> that you are the president of the Texas chapter of the Recording Academy? Uh, Senator, I don't recall. That's <laughs> no, true. I am. Uh, I was. I'm a governor. Uh, I think I my term expires as governor. Next month, maybe April. Governor. I think it's, yeah, governor. <laughs> um, 
so I've been a governor for four years. I was vice president for two years, mm-hmm. and um, I'm in about halfway through my first term um, of a two-year term as president. Uh, and Texas so the Academy. Recording Academy, and, and all, that's and that's that really what it's all about is the Grammys. Yeah. All right. That's well. It's part of it's part of what it's about. It's that's what that's the brand that everybody knows, and that's what you know the, right. gold, the golden statues and the TV shows that everybody knows us for. So. All right. And so um, the so so how does the so no no help us out because let me tell you there's there's a, there's a couple things I hate. In life, and one Only is a couple. Yeah, well, that we'll talk about today. One is the music business. Okay, yeah, you know, I'm with you. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, but it oh seemed, wait, there's a music business. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so it seems to me that um, well, and I shouldn't say that because it's probably not unlike any other business. It's kind, of, it's all about kind of who you know, whose turn it is, what we can sell, who we're going to market, and we're going to cram it into your ear until you start to love it. And um, it's no different than any other company, the advertising business, or. But um, but but you have some insight in the music business, and we're going to get to that. And um, uh, but before we get started with anything, did you check out the Lance Armstrong thing last night? I did not. I'd seen so much on Twitter and so much pre-reveal, uh-huh. you know, that I didn't need to watch it. Right. Um, plus, it wasn't a big shocker to me anyway. I mean, um, I don't have any real. Uh, I mean, if if you're if you're leading me towards expressing my opinions on on. Doping and Lance and the Tour de France and lying and the integrity of the athlete and the American experience and all that. I um, I don't really care. I mean, um, I thought it was awesome when it was happening. Uh, not the doping, but the, the winning. I thought the doping <laughs> yeah. was right Yeah, on. the doping was so spot on. Um, <laughs> no, the, you know, he was an incredible athlete, you know, in, mm-hmm. incredibly driven guy. And, and um, he's from Austin, which I thought was cool. And. So it was all going down the the multiple years of you know consecutive you know trouncing at the Tour de France. Did you watch Tour de France? Yeah, did you buy in? You were into it? Yeah, I mean it's the only time I ever watched biking. Yeah, you know, that in the Olympics. Yeah. Um. So. Anyway, I, I mean, I was similarly like with Mark McGuire. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was obvious that guy was juicing. Sure. You know? He looked like a gorilla for God's sakes. Um, in a matter of years. Yeah, I mean, and then like I was, I was kind of disappointed about. Um, I guess it was Sammy Sosa. Was mm-hmm. it the next reveal? Mm-hmm. And then Clemens and all that. I mean, it just seems like now, um, you know, the the we're so the membrane has been burst. Like you know, if you're going to sure. compete at that level, you either can, you know, count on the fact that somebody was juicing or. Anybody that's that much better than the previous, but right. I go back to the Bambino man. I mean, uh-huh. he did all that stuff drunk. Right. You know? <laughs> I mean, the only thing he was hitting was the sauce. And <laughs> right. People are still trying to break his records. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and so, for, for and, he was, and he was heavy. You know. Well, he's, he's a bigger man. He's a bigger man, and he drank some booze and hit a bunch of home runs. You know? Unbelievable. Yeah. So for Lance, you know, I, I remember watching him, and he would. I can remember like him toying with the other riders out there. Yeah. And he would yeah. tell them. Yeah, on this next on this next climb, yeah, here it goes. Right, get ready for it. I'm me. gonna turn it on. Yeah. yeah, and he would do it, and he'd slow down, let him catch up. He'd burn him again. He was just he was he was toying with me, and I did it, man. I loved it. I loved watching him. I loved the whole act. I loved how much better he was, and I loved the story. Yeah, the comeback story. Yeah, I loved the comeback. I loved the pictures of him with his with you know going through the treatments, and there he is riding a stationary bike, and the surgery, and the and there he is on the comeback trail. I mean, I bought into the whole thing. But you know what? Deep down inside, 
of course he's of course he's doping. Why right. why would he not I mean that's what that's what the culture that's what they do that's what they did. I don't know if they still do. But you know, it's like it's like, you know, if you go to a professional bodybuilding competition and you think someone's out on steroids, you're crazy. Yeah, they right. all are and there's no exceptions, not one ever. Yeah. And um and that's just kind of a part of the deal, but in, but in addition to that, man, you know, it's like his um I I think if if you ever watch it, what you'll notice is about him, he is he's cold. Yeah. He's oh, like yeah. he's like hitman cold. I did see the clip of uh some deposition that he had done, you know, years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Wow, he's this guy's kinda hard. He goes hard. Like, yeah. You can tell he's kinda got some yeah, know, some tude. And uh then I did see that in the interview uh with the big O that he uh he referred to himself as a bully. He said I'm a deeply broken bully or something like that. Yeah. Which is interesting insight from a guy who's doing a Mia culpa. I mean, as, as I, one of my friends tweeted yesterday, he's like, as far as Mia culpas go, that was a good one. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty good. But, you know, I mean, the, this whole area for me is weird. Like, when to see, you know, Senate hearings with baseball players, I just think it's a complete waste of time. And yeah. Asinine. Um, if you need to haul Mark McGuire and Clemens and those guys in front of, you know, the Senate, I mean, Baseball is way too important in your life. Right. <laughs> I mean, not, nothing against baseballs. I mean, whatever. The value of sport has its eternal thing. But, sure. Um, you know, pro sports is really a lot about advertising. And I'm kind of jaded now. Like, I don't have <clears> – <throat> I'm from Houston. Um, so that'll make you – that'll turn you off to sports for one thing. <laughs> uh, but I was born here. And, you know, I guess it's been this way forever. But at a younger age, like when the Oilers left mm – -hmm. Well, when the Oilers teased us many years in a row and, you know, go to the playoffs and always get beat by Pittsburgh or whoever. Right. Or earlier by the Browns or whoever it would be. Um, I was I was really happy with the Rockets, you know, who were never begging for a stadium. You know, they just casually won two, two in a row. But it's exciting stuff back then, wasn't it? It was amazing. Um, but I kind of got, you know, I'm sure it's been this way forever. You know, teams have been moving um, for, you know, since the beginning of, you know, organized, you know, sports since – you know, uh, league sports, national sports. But um, it really kind of, like, took the civic pride thing out of it for me with Bud Adams and the orders and when they mm -hmm. left. Is it, and then, like, the it just seems like now the the free agent mobility and, like, the entire model of teams and players being just – there's no civic component to it. It's just like, no. who will build the stadium that, right. we, that we want to build uh, – and then you'll get the team, whether either you'll take one from somebody else or they'll expand. But anyway, my, my whole thing on all of it was if you, if sports are really important to a lot of people, especially collegiate sports, if you've got some kind of college pride for your alma mater, I mean, like I see that's a big deal. I just don't have that. Like I don't have any, you know, I watched the Texans once I got into the playoffs and I watched a little bit earlier. I dig, uh, Aaron Foster. I think he's awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wasn't really, you know, I've lost. I used to watch football and NBA basketball like religiously, like when I was nineteen, twenty, and now I just don't care. Yeah, um, I'm not moved emotionally by it anymore. The, 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 the I'll tell you, the sporting event I still moves me is that whole NCAA basketball tournament. Yeah, I still get yeah, I still right. get emotional about that. Yeah, when you know Butler is up against Duke. Yeah, and I see this. You know, and I, I love those moments. It's the only times in your life when you'll say the word Valparaiso. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I get fired up for that. Yeah. And so for me, you know, the whole thing, the, the one surprising, um, the one lesson I guess I learned about Lance wasn't, um, I, I knew what he was doing. I knew it. I mean, everybody had been caught before. It's just a matter of time. And everybody knew it was he was a bull. You know, there's a per, part of your personality when you get to that level. You know, like Michael Jordan, for example. I mean, if you read the bios, the real bios about that guy, he's a he he's got a nasty side. You know, it's that competitive drive. You know that. You know, I'm not saying you have to have that to be at that level, but brother, it doesn't hurt. Right. And then, and so I knew that about Lance. But the one thing I was surprised about the callousness and the coldness of, you know, when people would when. Other people were per, were, were put on the spot, and um, in congressional hearings or whatnot, and deposition, had to tell the truth. Right. And so these families would tell the truth. Right. And he'd sue them. Yeah. He'd bring them down financially, yeah. break them. Yeah. Because he's making hundred million a year, and he would. And so they went, and and they'd ask him about that. He said, "Yeah, it's terrible." Yeah. yeah. I mean, just emotionless. Just wind strong. Yeah, yeah right, right right and uh exactly and so so that was surprising for me now here's now we haven't actually gotten into the meat of this thing today but here's the other thing i want to talk to you about i was thinking about today um are uh, i believe they're called asian ladybugs yeah i, I saw the garden oaks facebook post about them okay had, but i don't know anything about it you don't you don't you don't have these in your house uh you're about the little green those things no these are ladybugs they live in your house um, no. All right. So let me, let me educate you, son. We, we, um, got, a, we got a couple of greyhounds. <laughs> that doesn't, that's not even close couple, to the situation. Cats. Um, no, these are ladybugs. And so this is an insect. That, I'm not sure uh, that I'm not offended that you're calling them Asian though. How do you know that? <laughs> that's just the name. I don't know. Right. I don't. And so, um, we, uh, for no, 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 we live in the same hood. We both come from the mean streets of Garden Oaks and, <laughs> yeah. um, and this is, and, and people understand the nasty, the, this environment we live in. Let me tell you something. If you think the paper boy gets the paper to my front door every day, oh no, sir. Sometimes oh, yeah. I got to walk halfway across the yard. We come from the mean streets of Garden Oaks and, and part of growing up in this hard life that we live is, uh, is this Asian ladybug infestation. So what we have in our house and it's in two rooms, it's in my daughter's bedroom and in our upstairs bathroom thing, it's, uh, I think on an average day, I'll count about 12 ladybugs. Now, now was your, like some houses in Garden Oaks, mm -hmm. was your house built on a Native American burial ground? That's an excellent question. I'm, to, I don't know I'm not sure why the Asian ladybugs have a problem with that. I don't know. I want to get the shovel out tonight and find yeah, out, though. That's right. I got yeah. some work to do. I'll meet you out there. <laughs> and so, you, and so, and, I, and I've talked to other neighbors, and and they have them as well. But you're saying, I haven't, you, I haven't seen any. I mean, because um, you would know if you got them. They're everywhere. Oh yeah, no, we don't have any kind of infestation that I've noticed. Okay. I mean, but you know what? If you're gonna have an infestation, that's a cool one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I'll harmless. Take, I'll take a dozen ladybugs any day. Yeah, uh, and don't they eat aphids or whatever? Like, aren't they good if you have aphids on your plants? Don't ladybugs eat? Isn't that the green solution to aphids in it, your garden? I believe so. I'm getting a nod from production staff. Yeah. Yes. That's a uh, there's like eight or ten people running this whole thing right back behind us. <laughs> yeah, there's craft service. And my my trailer is right there. Right in in the uh, right in the uh, totem pole of the food chain, I believe aphid is below the Asian ladybug. Oh yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure about the. Um, we're really going off on the Asian ladybugs here. Yeah, but, um, it's fascinating. If you get a yeah. dozen of them in one room every day. Yeah. So somebody posted, to... like it said, is anybody else experiencing an infestation of these Asian ladybugs or have they heard of it? And right. I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm so, the guy. I know, I know what they're talking about. 
Tell you what, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bottle some up. I'm gonna bring them over to your house. I'm gonna let them go run run wild and manifest uh, my house. Yeah, and uh, it, it's a treat. They can uh, they can live on my giant pillow for my giant head in my little house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hypercranial. Yeah. All right, so let's get into this thing. So let's it's let's 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 get on target. So you are uh, mainly in the music industry. That's that's part of your uh, professional life. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you do some other things on the side, I know, and uh, but 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 music is the main one. And so when you were coming through school, and like especially early back, and you, you're gonna have to think like back five six decades when when you're in elementary school, and you're coming through elementary school, um, was was music a part of your life, or or was it just something you picked up later? No, it was always there. I um, every year that I can remember is as early as they offered choir, I took it. Um, and actually before that, it was just a music class, like general music. And I guess that was second, third grade. Right. Um, I think it was third grade actually. But the minute we had choir, I did choir. And then every year for the rest of, I went to public school. So in both Spring Branch and HISD. And I went from sixth grade through, uh, all the way through high school in HISD. And it was, yeah, a fundamental part of, um, my school experience it's like most of my good memories most of my good experiences um some of the coolest teachers uh the uh my first when i knew that i wanted to like like when i first got the bug to perform um like my first big crowd to play in front of on a different podcast i misstated that it was third grade but it was fifth grade mm -hmm. and um so I was in the choir. Oh, uh, the fact checker. Yeah, fact checker brought that. Well, to I, listen, I was listening to the, you know, and being a true narcissist, being a musician, right. uh, I listened back to the, pod, <laughs> the podcast because I thought I had said some stuff that might be, is that true? Yeah, like is that, mm -hmm. is that accurate? Um, was I doping? Right. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, in uh, fifth grade, uh, I was in the choir at Thornwood Elementary, which is the last. Um, I think that was the. That was the. Uh, yeah, second to last Spring Branch school that I went to. And um, so it's out there right across from Stratford. Right. So if you go there, you go to Stratford. That's how you or there to Spring Woods to Stratford or Spring Forest. Anyway, um, at, I was in the choir there, and we had like a you know performance for the, the PTA meeting. You know, back then it was a PTA. Uh, and They changed that vowel sense. Yeah, yeah. Had to be an organization. Right. You know? Um so we, you know, the choir sang a bunch of songs and totally like a Saturday Night Live skit. We would always do like, you know, um, a hip contemporary song. <laughs> like, a, like a Barry Manilow tune at the time or something? No, like in, well, in high school, in like um, one of my great teachers we'll talk about later, my choir conductor in, in high school, uh, you know, we were doing like September by uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, you know. And like here in, it was totally like the Altadena Middle School, Will Ferrell and uh -huh. Anna Gasteyer thing, you know like trying to take something incredibly funky and cool and like sing it with a choir. Right. And everybody's got weird matching crappy suits on. <laughs> um, so in fifth grade we had this uh, PTA meeting and there's a lot of people. It's a, it's a full cafetorium of people. Sure. Yeah. I said cafetorium. That's I right. tell you what, man, I don't know if you know about this. I spoke at a school recently and you, and, and, and right there, the sign on the cafetorium, you know, you know what it said? Cafetorium. Auditoria. Yeah. You're lying. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That's either great comedy or weird truth um i so I, I i had two gigs i had two breakout moments in the choir performance at thornwood in fifth grade one was uh to uh, the hip song that we were going to do the hip relatively contemporary song 
was uh, blown in the wind, Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah. So I had my three-quarter size Yamaha, and I accompanied. They put a, you know, like an SM58 in front of me on a chair, and I sat next to the choir uh-huh. and strummed along, you know. And then there's something else happened in the program, and then I got like a solo, and I did um, a John Prine song that called Dear Abby, who just died yesterday, by the way. Really? Nice serendipitous moment there. How about that? I mean, not nice, but... I get it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, I forget what her real name was, but she passed away yesterday. Um, so this John Prine song that I loved, I, I played it for the PTA meeting, and it has this one verse that's kind of off-color about... Um, getting his girlfriend pregnant or something. So I had to, they, the school made me omit that verse. But, censored already. Uh, yeah, censored in fifth grade. That's, <laughs> I go hard, I told you. Just the fact you knew John yeah. Prine was in the fifth grade is I'm, amazing. I'm OG. Yeah. And, yeah, that's that's to my mom and my uncle's credit. They turned me on to a bunch of hip music um, and um, were big influences on what I listened to and whatever. Um, but yeah, so that was the first um, spotlight moment where it's literally a spotlight in the darkness and like people clap after I sang. I was like, this is awesome, you know. So it fueled my narcissism for the remaining, you know, thirty-five years, and they still, still live in it. Yeah, still I'm there talking about. Here we are, and <laughs> on microphone talking about myself. Right. So enough about you, pal. <laughs> and uh, so, and so there, and so that, so the music thing. You got the bug early, and you were interested. What was it about music? Do you think was it the um, that 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 emotional connection with it, or you just because for me, as a musician growing up, I I was just blown away. By how somebody could create that. I remember thinking, you know, I was a I was a percussionist, I was a drummer, and just the coordination, the rhythm, just the just the, the science behind it freaked me out. The you know the groove of it, you know, emotionally, the you know what what I felt would, would just blow me away. What was it for you? Um, probably, I just thought it was it made me feel something like it. And I thought it was cool. I mean, I was really into, I mean, as long as I can remember, I was a Beatles freak, Elvis freak, um, basically whatever my family and friends are listening to. Um, uh, I think it was, I knew that I wanted to play guitar. I'll put it this way. Like I, I got, so I started playing guitar. I took my first lessons in when I was eight and the, the first instrument that I got was a banjo, but by my own request, not sure where that came from, but because um, we didn't listen to a bunch of bluegrass or anything, right. but I do now, but didn't then. Um, and then my uh, kindergarten or first grade, I think it was kindergarten, teacher's kid came over like to play at my house and stepped on the drum head of my banjo. And so for Christmas that year, I asked for uh, another banjo, right. and my mom wisely got me uh, a guitar instead. Mm. Have you ever written? Have you ever? Have you? Taking the time to to write a letter of appreciation for stepping on the and and busting the banjo for him for him turning my career yes. from the banjo to the to the guitar. <laughs> right. If I remembered who the kid was, uh, <laughs> and I don't remember which, you will get a lot, brother. I'm pretty sure that was Briar Grove Elementary, so it would have been. So if you're out there, teacher of mine from first grade, um, I think that's first grade. What are you eight? Let's see. Is that right? Second grade, third grade. I met kids are like ten in the first grade. All depends. <laughs> I was eighteen. Yeah, <laughs> driving to school, yeah, shaving. <laughs> now, um, anyway, uh, obviously public school mathematics are not my strong suit. Uh, I'm an American kid. Um, You're a musician, man. You count the four, you start back at one. That's math. Exactly. Exactly. Um, do loop, repeat. Right. Uh, so I, my mom got me a, a guitar to replace the banjo, and I knew. So it was a kind of a subpar guitar and um 
we signed up for lessons at the now gone uh, guitar gallery over mm-hmm. Richmond and Montrose. Mm-hmm. And I had a cool teacher. And um, first thing he said was like, no offense. And of course, as a guitar teacher, uh, me being a guitar teacher years later, I've had this conversation a thousand times. We're like, no offense, but we have to get a guitar that's playable. And so he was cool. And he got us just, I still have it, a three quarter size Yamaha gut string, you know? Nice. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of where it took off. And I, so I never quit. And so by the time I was in high school, I thought it was awesome. And I was, you know, big guitarist on campus and all that, or, or one of them. Uh-huh. Um, and I was just always did it. It was one of my biggest social connections because I was kind of a bookworm dorky right. kid. And, um, and that's probably a shocker to you, but, um, but it was a, it was a, it was a really good social thing for me. Like, um, once I got old enough to, so there was the, oh, you can play an instrument and that's kind of cool. Um, and there's all the cognitive benefits and learning benefits of sure. you know, taking music and documented. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I'm a firm believer, but, um, the you know once I got into high school, and you have like or junior high, and you have your electric guitar, your first you know let's let's have a band mm-hmm. you know, then I was like okay now you can like meet girls that would never talk to you otherwise, and that part was totally true and stereotypical mm-hmm. and all that, but um, it was it was really a it's always been a huge part of my life in school. Uh, I did you know the, of course did the plays and the musical theater stuff in school in high school and did. Um, choir and then uh at u of h i was in the concert chorale which is this small select group of you know great singers and with a great conductor um so it's been all the way through my schooling it was there um and some of my fa- one of the best teachers i've ever had in my life was um my choir conductor charles hausman at u of h who's now the um i think he's the symphony chorus conductor hmm I'll tell you what's interesting is you don't hear that a lot. You, you know, when I, and I ask, you know, everybody, you know, people in the airport or having conversations, you know, talk about the, that, that teacher that had made an impact, you know, who, who's a great teacher and you hardly ever hear anybody talk about somebody at the university level. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was staggeringly good. Um, in fact, I, I had an awkward conversation with him, uh, at the, we had like an end of semester party where we all went to like, uh, cafe Adobe or something. We had a private room and all that stuff, and it was the concert chorale and, you know, Dr. Hausman. And we had this, like, I told him this at the time. I was so into the experience, and it made him visibly uncomfortable, so I had to just kind of shut up. But uh, I was telling him, like, you're the you're the best instructor of any kind I've ever had, you know. Um, like the kind of guy that um, if you're prepping for, you know, these acapella Bach pieces we were doing or whatever, mm-hmm. you do them at the organ recital hall at U of H, and, um, you know, he starts off with, Okay, let's all let's all sit down together and we're spending today on saying ta 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 on the rhythm. So let's read let's sight read the rhythm together and then let's sight read the notes together would be the next rehearsal. Yeah. And then uh he would spend an inordinate amount of time, a huge amount of time on um German pronunciation. So we go through the lyrics, he translate them for us. He could sing in any register. So like when he was quickly showing us parts and making corrections and fine tuning the choir. Right. He's hitting soprano parts, bass parts. Just incredible. Plus, he's one of three siblings. I think he's had two brothers. Like, one's a brain surgeon. The other's a, you know, whatever. They're all, like, uber achievers. So he happens, he got the music bug. So he's the genius of the three that's the music genius. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still around in Houston. Got a high profile. He's a, he's a great guy. Yeah. Great teacher. But I had other, um, he actually was a vocal coach for my high school choir conductor. 
who I saw just a few years ago um, at a, uh, a wedding, and we got to hang out afterwards and chat, and um, we had a we had a tenuous relationship when I was in school because I was getting a little naughty back then. All right, let's uh, get to the bottom of this. So you are I don't want I don't want I don't want to leave out any of these details. So you you so you are the kid who's connected and with with music and it's what's fueling you to go to school. Now are you are you doing okay academically in your yeah, other classes? I did great uh I was in the accelerated classes until 11th grade basically all right that's when they figured out the truth about you and then right. um that's when things went wrong that's when i started playing more guitar than anything else and, <laughs> and skateboarding was a huge distraction i was a big skateboarder for a while and so you're doing your thing until everything's going good and you're in high school and you're doing choir it's important to you doing some musical theater as well you mentioned and um and and uh, who is your choir teacher at this point eleanor grant and she's who i'm talking about she, she ended up taking um some kind of voice instruction from Dr. Hausman when I was Miss Grant, sir. Yeah. Ms. 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 Grant. Yeah. And she is your uh, choir teacher mm-hmm. and, um, and she, and she's playing a role in your life, man. She, uh, she's a positive impact. I can tell. Yeah. She was awesome. Uh, it was tense at first, um, because I was, you know, at that stage of my life where I was changing and like I was partying and skateboarding and playing guitar and like playing gigs, you mm-hmm. know, like, so, um, school was kind of a distraction for me. I already, right. I was already trying to like get out in the world, but, um, she, I did like choir, you know, and I, I went, um, you know, regularly I didn't skip choir. Like that was a class I would go to. Right. Um, and academically I'd done great up until, you know, and I, I did great. I think I was in the top of the class, like the top 25% of the class mm-hmm. at, at a big school. At, that's back when Lee was a totally different school. I went to Robert E. Lee, Houston. Um, so I, you know, I was not like a problem student or anything like that. Um, I think I was more one of those students that disappoints because the, 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 I'd set the bar so high for so many years and then tore it down myself. <laughs> Mind you, kids, don't do this. Um, <laughs> look, look what happens. Yeah. I mean, next thing you know, you're president of the Grammys. No, just, just kidding. Um, I should point out that that's, I'm, I'm an elected person with the Grammys. I'm right. an elected officer, not, uh, it's not my job. Um, so, uh, yeah, she, we had this, a great relationship until I started being kind of difficult and hanging out with the older kids. Um, and then I just kind of, Righted my own rudder and kind of came back into the fold and and uh, um, then when I graduated I went to uh, U of H and she actually let me come back and teach student teach the choir so back then I thought I was going to go back I was totally going to do the welcome back Cotter thing I was going to go I wanted to go teach choir at my old school and it was a stupid nostalgic idea now that I look back at it um, and I had watched a lot of welcome back Cotter so I thought it'd be cool um, but. Uh, she she would let me come back and teach when she found out that Dr. Hausman was my choir conductor. Mm-hmm. Um, it gave me cred enough to come back, and, and she let me, you know, so basically give her a break where she could go do whatever, grab an Antones or something, and I would teach her class for right. an hour or something. And then um, what, when, when, when you were in those uh, classes for the four years with uh, uh, with her, um, what would you say were some of the qualities that, that was most important for the, uh, that kind of resulted in that positive impact that she had on you? Um, I don't know. I guess it was just, uh, really was the singing, you know, she was good at what she did. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, everybody kind of saw her as, you know, rigid and, um, not one of the coolest teachers. Like she wasn't described as one of the cooler teachers. Like there were two choir teachers there 
And um, when you were a freshman, you know, you had this other teacher and then Miss Grant was the conductor for the um, the proper choir. I forget what we were called. Um, we had a name, whatever it was. Um, anyway, uh, she, like the other one was seen as kind of like the nicer, cooler one. Mm-hmm. She was funnier and she was more relaxed. And Eleanor Grant was, was a little bit more strict and um, kind of buttoned up, you know. But she was really good at what she did. And um, there were a couple of experiences. Like she was friends with um, this Texan composer that she arranged for us to go off campus. And like we sang, like uh, we used to go to Woodville uh, to the Dogwood Festival and we'd go sing there. Mm-hmm. And then um, that was an annual thing. And then um, this composer named Didi Dusan did, I forget what small town we went to. And it was this intimate, cool thing in a church uh, of her music with her accompanying us on organ and piano and this, our choir. And it was just really cool. It was kind of all the coolness of the field trip, which you like when you're that age mm-hmm. with your bros and your friends that are all in the choir with you and the little, you know, subcommittees of friends that you have in, in choir. And then this performance experience, it was really intimate and quiet and um, kind of a precursor to my college, uh, the organ recital choir things, which were just amazing. Um, uh, organ recital hall, the performance hall, choir performances. And then we did like a cool one in college. It was at uh, St. Pius yeah. um, with the combined U- university chorus and the concert chorale. It was amazing. You know, it was like Christmas, you know, Heinless Messiah, whatever. Right. I, I, t- I tell you what's interesting that uh, comes to mind is uh, a few days ago I was talking to a, a teacher at, uh, he's in Florida. His name is Dennis Dill, teaches at the McKeel Academy. And he was talking about this concept of when he's thinking about teaching, and teaching his kids. And, um, of course, you know, we want to deliver great content. Absolutely. And uh, we want to be passionate about it. But what he was talking about, you know, when he's uh, creating these lessons, you know, he, in his mind, he's made the distinction now between building a lesson plan and building a lesson and building memories. Because he's talking about, you know, that when, when these kids are 30 and they're thinking back, when they're 40 thinking back, you know, it's these big memories that they have that is going to be in their mind and and all the details around that big memory is going to be is going to serve as the educational part of the deal so in his mind so he's creating the so so when i ask you you know what was it about miss grant what you immediately talking about are these moments of the well we have the woodville thing and these performances and you know you know it's all these big major memories and that is like the vehicle that gets all the details and you can still remember some of the content based on these big memories yeah uh, Well, I'll tell you this, I'm skipping uh, what I started to say uh, that I shouldn't skip is that experientially, like being on the stands in the choir room, Mm -hmm. it was a, it was a, there was a self-esteem thing that was a huge part of it where you're kind of privately ranking yourself against the people that you're singing next to, Yeah, you know? So, I mean, at, at the, you know, high school level at a public school, it's not super selective. It's an elective class, so it's not like you're you're going to get cut for you know if you can carry a tune in a bucket, they'll let you in. You right. know, um, but we were kind of good, and we had a couple of you know a few really really good singers. You, have, you always have those stand out like people that have got the sauce and just have always had it. Yeah. Um, but I remember being in the stands, like in like the the creek and the field of the stands, and like I can remember the people that I like singing next to, and like some of these people are still friends of mine on Facebook and in right. the real world. Um, but people that I've done these field trips with and stood on the stands for rehearsal day after day, class day after day, and then done these field trips and performances with. And that's the stuff where I remember feeling really 
uh, I knew that I liked it, which was, you know, I love this. I love doing this. And um, when we got locked in, like when we rehearsed on something well enough to where we started to kind of gel and started to sound good, um, it was just cool. Like I've, I've always been really, really into vocal harmony, like, and just harmony period. And in a pretty big class, I mean, it's a big school, so the choir was kind of big. Yeah. Um, you get a bunch of voices going, you know, it's like, I love singing with big gospel choirs and stuff. Just, it's hard to beat the, the pure visceral thing of a bunch yeah. of great singers really putting it out. You that know, whole auditory passion, man. It's killer. Yeah. And like, and the, you know, the, the, the sort of game day mentality that you get like at a performance, like are the harmonies, are we going to lock in and listen to each other? So there's all the symmetry and all this um, symbiosis that has to happen between the parts and, you know, it's just like with a band or anything like that. But um, it's it's a unique experience with a bunch of voices because it's like an orchestra of voices. And sure. so there's the personalities behind those voices and the personal styles and inflections and vibrato and their pitch. And, you know, do they lay back on the beat, behind the beat, do they head mm-hmm. of the beat? So I remember like learning young, like even in elementary school, um, choir was always sort of a, uh, I knew, I, like I always felt like I could sing pretty well, you know, compared to the people around me and, and, or as well as this person, but not near as good as this person. So there's kind of a self-worth measurement thing happening. Sure. Like, like, Did you guys have a, like, I know in band, when I was a band director, we always had like the chair, there's a first chair, second chair, third chair. Yeah. You guys do that in choir as well. Yeah. And I was also in band, like I was in sixth grade, uh, was that six or seven, sixth grade. I did saxophone. I was second chair. And then seventh grade came back into, HISD and at TH Rogers junior high, uh, that was, she was a great teacher also. Um, her name fails me right now or escapes me right now, but, um, uh, that was French horn. Mm-hmm. And so I picked like the worst possible instrument to carry on, except for the tuba right. or the sousaphone to carry on the bus. And I did that. It was difficult bus. to play too. French horn. Oh yeah. I thought it was easy. That was pretty easy. So I was first chair on that. Uh, mm-hmm. you know why? That was the only French horn. There you go. So uh, last year, you what you're saying. But then, hey, hey. Uh, <laughs> but then, actually, we, we had, by, I think, the next semester or year, we had three or four, and I was still first chair. But I'll tell you, man, that's a ton of information. But here's you know, one, the, the one that kind of sits right here at the forefront of my mind is when you would say, I still remember the creaking of those stands when we, would, when we were up there together. And because I think as teachers, you know, we forget that these little moments, you know, it, it really is, is this feeling in that classroom that these kids are going to take with them. And, you know, you know, um, Skinner, you know, old man Skinner says that education is what remains after all that's been learned has been forgotten. Right. Well, that, that's, that's really what we're talking about is this feeling of, um, that, that in that classroom and then, and then the content that gets attached to that feeling that we're going to take with us when we move in through life. And, and, you know, in, in the first, I think I was maybe a third year teacher. And the first time I really got that, and there was a guy I taught with, his name was Gary Faust. He was a band director. He still is. And, uh, and I remember watching him. He's in front of a junior high and he would do amazing works with his junior high band. And I was working with my percussionist teaching in the back and, you know, back there with the monkeys. And there he is up there. And, and I mean, this, the, the music that he could get these kids to create. They just started playing two years ago in sixth. Right. Here they are as eighth. And he would be up there on the podium conducting. And I mean, tears would be coming down his face. And he, and kids were just moved. And this is in the band hall. Man, right. we're not, this isn't even at a performance. Right. And it was, and then, I, I mean, that's when I really got this whole concept. 
and and you know here we are talking about choir or band, but it could it could be any class. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, the vehicle doesn't matter. But once we get that emotion in that class and that passion for whatever we're teaching, you know, that that's when that kid is going to walk through walk the rest of their walk through the rest of their lives, still remembering not just what we taught them, but you know, who we were. And, you know, and I think for me, that's, that's what, that's what, you know, education isn't necessarily just passing along the knowledge, man. It's passing along who you are as a person. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sharing it with those kids forever. You, you, you reminded me, I mean, there were all these other teachers, some of my favorite teachers, particularly in high school were the teachers that I had like, you know, a good rapport with, like they were cool. Yeah. And, um, it goes, it, it kind of reminds me of, um, both of my primary mentors in the music business and production business said the same thing that I think back that these teachers successfully did with me, which was just be cool. Like if you want to get good work, have good clients and have return business, just be cool. Uh, don't be the grumpy engineer. You know, yeah. if you, if your chops are good, people will might come back, but if your chops are good and you're cool and you're fun to be around and, and you're real, um, then people will come back because they like to hang, you know? And, I think back now and like uh, Miss Conte, who was uh, my oceanography teacher at Lee, um, we had a great sparring relationship. She was super cool and smart and funny. And um, it's not like I was looking to go, uh, you know, to be a, an oceanographer or whatever, like a, run a fish hatchery or, you know, work, 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 work for Noah or whatever. Uh -huh. um, uh, but I... We had a, a great, you know, we that we did go on these field trips and get, you know, fish from Galveston and bring it back in the class and, you know, maintain your aquarium with a team of, you know, four people and yeah. and uh, but Miss Conte and I had a great, um, mutually respectful. She treated me really. Um, she challenged me. She ribbed me. She joked with me, praised me, um, but she was basically real. I mean, she was just funny and smart and real, and kind of the filter was off, like sure. that, that barrier that a lot of teachers. Um, and you know, it's, I'm not going to pretend that teaching is an easy gig, especially if you're, um, you know, a public school teacher in Houston in the seventies, eighties, you know, yeah. it's like you, there's some obligation you have to maintain order, you know? Sure. So I know it's a tough gig, but, um, the ones that the teachers that managed to, you know, do that and to be who they were and like have a sense of humor, you know, they could, when they could hold down the class and teach the curriculum and make a personal connection with you. Sure. That was the trifecta. And like, those are the, those are the teachers that I remember. Yeah. And they're the ones that usually I got good grades in those classes and, um, or, or better grades, um, in those classes. And, uh, they're the ones that, uh, whose names I remember, you know, like most of them are the ones that I, to this day, I can remember specific conversations with them that were funny or it's crazy, you know, man. And or we, shaming. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Either way, because you know, when, when you have that and it's funny cause you, cause you can remember specific conversations with them and you know, I, I don't know if you saw on Facebook recently, you know, I, you know, I put that picture up that that kid looking down and said, and it says everything you say to a child is absorbed, cataloged and remembered. Oh yeah. Especially in those moments of intensity. And I think, you know, a lot, it's, you're right, man. Teaching is such a huge responsibility. And, um, because of the pressure and every teacher knows it, you know, I think it, it, we, we don't lose sight of it, but when you're emotionally in the trenches of teaching like that, and, and some days are good, some days are a little bit more challenging. And, um, and the pressure of everything that comes out of my mouth 
is is going into that child and is making a part of who this person is for the rest of their lives. It is insane pressure. And um and and you know and to hear you talk about that um the uh, uh the the uh, oceanography uh, teacher being real. Yeah. That man that's yeah. such an important thing cuz here's a th- especially today, definitely back then but never more than today because these kids and with it with our 24-hour news cycle, they know the truth. And they know what you're capable of. Look, they just look, look at the, just last night with Lance Armstrong. At one point, one of probably the top two or three most respected people in the nation went all at the height of that whole thing. And look what he did. Right. And and now they see there's an integrity problem. He lied. There's a character issue. He's flawed. Right. And and so so they know. The kids know it's not about who you, they, they just because you're older than me. That's nothing, man. Because you went to college, who cares? Especially now, like, yeah. The kids have great BS radar now. And they know, you know. So yeah. it's it's that absolute total authenticity, man. Yeah. This is who I am. And when we make mistakes, we got to say it, dude. I totally yeah. blew it right there. I mean, I you, so you, I, I never taught in you know the school system. I I left um, university to go and teach. I started teaching guitar mm-hmm. while I was at school. While I was at U of H, mm-hmm. and I started playing gigs, like where I was touring a little bit. So I was kind of like, again, like I wanted to get out in the real world. And essentially, I started doing so well um, financially teaching guitar that I just I realized I was going to make that I was making already more money than I would as a high school choir conductor or maybe even a small college tenured guy. You know? Yeah. And I just thought, well. I like doing this and it gives me half the morning free to write music and do, you know, my band, my rock and roll thing. Um, and I ended up with, um, you know, it was, it was probably an ill-advised decision on some level. Um, but there was a lot of good that came from it for me personally. And, and one thing, um, so I ended up, I started this weird guitar keyboard store. They sold early, early digital organs, you know, and uh, I took on my first student there. Um, so I was kind of working in the store mm-hmm. and teaching. And then all of a sudden I had like 55 students a week. And, you know, what's cool and different about that from the uh, the teaching in a school, like teaching, you know, state curriculum and that kind of thing. Um, first of all, it's music only, but it was half-hour lessons back then. So every week, you know, it's 55 students a week. So it's a completely different human of a completely different age, personality, learning type, cognitive capability every half hour. And so you got to meet and greet them, be cool, make the love connection, tune their guitar, right. teach them what they're supposed to learn, see if they practice from last week, give them their new ob- objectives, record stuff, have CDs and whatever so you could, um, or cassettes mm-hmm. so you could play whatever and show them stuff, um, graph out the stuff that you wanted to you know, transcribe, what you wanted to learn. Um, but what I realized afterwards, um, was a couple of things. I, I spent a lot of whatever allotment of patience that you get in your life. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of it as a guitar teacher because I did for like seven years. I taught this many kids for <laughs> at six of those seven years. I had over 50 students a week and <laughs> you have like inventory of patience. Yeah. You like ran through whatever, it. you know, camelback of patience you wear under your you know, skin. It was, I, I tapped it out, but, um, it was really, really enriching to what I realized later was adjusting myself to, you know, a completely different personality, a completely different human yeah. and cognitive, all that stuff that I just said every 30 minutes and getting it done 
And I realized when I, when I quit doing it finally, um, or quit for some time, I thought, well, that was really successful. That was good for me. You know, that was really good for me to, um, socially, cognitively, everything for me, it was really good to, to have to adapt to them. Uh, and I got to be a good teacher. Like I got, I started out teaching guitar because I knew how to play guitar. Right. But then I ended up being a really good instructor. And then, um, I think when you and I first met, I told you I've had, um, so my very first student is still a friend of mine on Facebook and he's, he's now grown. He's got, um, two of his own kids. Um, he's, you know, he's a grown man, you know, like, um, but he and another student that I had have, uh, both either written me or emailed me over the years and just said, um, you know, you're, I was nobody until I started taking guitar lessons. And then when I started playing guitar, playing what I learned at school and then had a band, they had that same social connection that sure. I'm talking about where yeah. these kids were kind of in the cocoon of being nobody in a big school like mm-hmm. Stratford or whatever. Um, all of a sudden they had a skill and a thing that was cool that gave them self-confidence and it gave them a social, a thing to interact around with other kids that were like them. Right. And anyway, a couple of them have written me over the years or called me over the years and said, you know, just really touching things. Like I want to thank you because it changed my life. Like it changed the, the course of my life, just guitar lessons. Sure. You know? So I, I can imagine like the pressure of being, you know, trying to teach in, you know, state curriculum school, like, and all those 30 kids are coming at once yeah. and you're greeting them all at the door, all individually, you know, <laughs> they're all sitting with all those different learning styles, like a Hydra. Yeah. You, right? And we're, yeah. And you, and you got to turn that thing on and you know, it's what, yeah, man, that's, that's such an important thing. We, you know, when, when, when parents ask me, you know, what can I do? My, you know, my kids not going to junior high. My kids, you got to get them connect, involved in something. Find something. Yeah. You know, whether if it, if it's athletics, awesome. If it's choir, wonderful. Student council, debate, art, band. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, and find something. To get, you know, like like my son Jones. He's um, he's seven. He's like into this parkour thing. Yeah. Loves it. Yeah. Goes to parkour. That's he's right. like the star, man. He's like the parkour star of seven year olds. And that's his thing. And my daughter's this amazing singer, you know, and, um, and, uh, and, but, but, you know, the, the key isn't, isn't the thing. I don't even care what the thing is. We just got to get them involved and passionate and connected to something because that's what, that's what's going to drive them and fuel them because there's some stuff that we have to do in life. Yeah. We don't have, you know, there's some things, you know, growing up, you have to do it as part of the deal. Yeah. As we get older, those get lesser to where we can kind of control our lives. But, you know, you have to learn certain things, you know, and, and, but that's the fuel that drives them through the rest of it. And, and so now let me ask you this. So you're in your, with, with teaching guitar, because this is different. There's some, there's some different sides of the brain being used. This isn't just facts and figures trying to get some kid, uh, you know, understand a, a concept. This is a, this is a, this is a little bit different. And, and you know, I, I always think back to the Michael Bublé quote about singing. You know, I saw Chris, I saw a Chris Isaac interview with Michael Bublé and Chris asked him, you know, you know, did you uh, grow up taking singing lessons? And, uh, and, uh, Bublé goes, singing lessons? Man, that's like taking tall lessons. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I took tall lessons, and, and, <laughs> obviously, and it worked. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. that's a great quote. Yeah. yeah, and so, but but I think I think music's the same way, except for with guitar, you can almost get just about anybody to play. I mean, sure, you're gonna have your standouts and some with unbelievable talent that just take this thing, yeah. you know. And um, and I and I, I can remember some kids in high school, some kids that went to not Katie, but over went to Taylor. I can't think of this kid's name. Uh, 
But man, this kid was just unbelievably. I played like his first year playing guitar was unbelievable. You yeah. know, went to L.A. the whole thing, and um, we can learn a lot. I mean, from watching somebody learn. Like uh, I, I could always tell, and I still have a couple of uh, students that I'll teach now, and it's amazing when you can see the light bulb. Like you, like when you. I mean, it, it it teaches you to teach by watching what's happening. Right, the aha and, moment. Yeah, the aha moment. I call that the Scooby. The Scooby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so you see that, and you see um, learning how to get there with each personality. It made me realize how to do that, and it also made me realize that everybody is there's no, you know, singular or three paths or four paths to that moment and to to a successful teaching experience. Every kid is completely different, yeah. you know, every, I mean, there are similarities and you can group them and, and, you know, sort of rank them or whatever you're, um, whatever you want to call it. But, um, every one of them is different. So really being real and being you and being able to make a personal connection with that kid sure. is the fastest way to figure out what their cognitive process is and what's going to resonate with them. I mean, you can see when the lights are out and they're just like, you know, you're like the peanuts right. and they're just like, you know, whatever my guitar and let me get out of here um but you can see the ones when they get inspired and they figure out or they make that synapse that connection like yep. oh you know like you can just see it in their face and all of a sudden they just they're off to the races you know mm -hmm. you've kind of done your thing but it was um that was interesting not just educationally but um socially just like seeing how different each human was you know every half hour completely different human brain working a totally different way on each one you yeah know? yeah so there was their aptitude their learning process their um, some of them are like deeply socially challenged. Um, and, uh, I mean, I could think of a couple, um, that I shouldn't mention, but I mean, a couple of kids that were really troubled kids, you know, uh, you would call them at risk now, uh, right. but they were, you call them troubled. Well, they were troubled. I mean, like they, like, uh, I could think of a couple whose parents were just nightmares, you know, yeah. like I, I remember thinking, you know, what a drag. I don't, I don't want to see this person for the first four seconds of the 30 minute you know, lesson. Sure. This this poor kid's got to live with them. You know, um, and they're being raised by that person. Um, but it was interesting to see the kids that that had more challenging home lives and more challenging, um, just their whole situation was way more difficult than anything I'd ever been through. Um, and seeing them just bloom like you know, off of something like just making a connection over a scale or a chord or a song that they like, and they realize they've got some proficiency they never knew they had. Um, there's probably nothing better really in teaching than seeing like the person develop because of whatever you've taught them. Sure. I mean, what you taught them is kind of cool. And like, you know, okay, good. Now you can play stairway to heaven. That's awesome. But, um, or whatever it is, sure. but, uh, the fact that you've now you've, you're in, I mean, you see them get inspired. You see them like they, they start to change their attitude. And, um, I don't mean like on a, um, uh, some holistic, Oh my God, I changed this kid's life with stairway to heaven. I just mean, you could see, inspiration happen and when they realize that they're you've made a connection you know yeah made. and i'm gonna tell you man i'm, I'm gonna I'll, i i will i will argue and win every time with this uh moments of changing kids lives i think you really underestimate because if you think about it on a on a trajectory of a timeline for that kid and maybe it is a wow moment of stairway to heaven where they they finally get the progressions there and it all comes together and they can resolve that thing at the end and it feels good so, you know, sure, that, that might be like just in that in the moment in the room at the back of the music store moment where that little aha, you know, the Scooby happened. But if you think about 
this kid now, you've shifted his path. Tiny, for sure tiny. And, and, and barely even noticeable. But as this kid moves through time, you know, the next year and the next year, he's still on this new path now. And what you see after 30 and 40 years are these kids coming back to thank you now 40 years later, yeah. you know, for, for that moment. Because what this kid has now realized, you know what it was? I'll tell you what it was is when I figured out. The, and they'll go back to the exact moment or the exact conversation that you just mentioned earlier, what they had with that teacher or whatever the moment. When they can go back to the exact moment when it happened. And, and, and now this kid is on a whole new path. And over time, it's, 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 it is exponential. You know, I, you know, I call it the 10% difference because what these kids, you know, these kids have 60,000 thoughts a day. 60,000. I know. It's shocking. Yeah. Because <laughs> you've met some kids. I only want to know what about 15 of them. Right. <laughs> well, that's right. And so, um, and so, and he, but here's what happened. When, when you just change it, you know, it's change a, a small percent, 5%. I mean, it's 3,000 thoughts, man. 10%, that's 6,000 new thoughts a day over. And these kids have them every day. So that's what puts them in this whole, it's like they end up in a completely separate universe from where they would have ended up because of that one tiny stairway to heaven moment. Yeah. And then I always challenge teachers. I said, well, you know, ask them this because when, you know, when kids come back to the school or they write you on Facebook, you know, they, I said, always ask them this. I say, hey, on that day that you're talking about, describe the shoes I was wearing. Right. Because the kids, because you know how kids stand there and they always stare down at your shoes when you're telling them something really heavy. They always. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and they always remember. But I always make friends. Like, I, you know, I still have a, a pretty good way with kids, like my nephews and nieces and the students that I teach now. Like, our relationship always starts with. I'm very, I mean, like, my wife would tell you, I'm, well, she probably has told you and your wife that I'm, I'm sort of a man child. You know, like, I'm a musician. Um, but. I, I dig kids because they're like really brutally honest and funny and uh -huh. like zero filter. Yeah. Um, and they crack me up like right. they're amazing. But, um, the, one of the things about that that's so cool is unlike conversations that you have all day long with adults, like this, this terribly shallow conversation that you and I are having right now, where we don't even respect each other's thoughts. Um, kids, they're listening to every word you say, you know, like, and so like being cool with them and being real with them, I mean, I, that's one of the things I had to learn teaching guitar and like being so I had to a recognize for the first time in my life that whether I intended it to be that so or not, that I was kind of a role model. Like um, they're paying attention to what I they, they're looking. I mean, they would look at every inch of what was on the walls in my office, yep. in my studio. They were fascinated by all these band posters and stuff that I had. Um, the entire all four walls were plastered to the ceiling with posters of my band and these other bands I played with around town and you know whatever old lightning Hopkins broadsides and stuff. Mm -hmm. And man, they was like the first lesson. They're always just soaking all that in. I can, you know, it took me a while to get their attention, but they do pay attention to like what shoes you're wearing, every word that you say. And yeah. that was like the other lesson for me, which is every parent can confirm is like, they, you know, I can see it. In my nieces and nephews, like they, man, they hear and remember everything. It's like, a, they absorb gotta, it all, man. It's a hard cool drive. It'd be cool what you're saying. Yeah, it's a hard drive, and it goes in there, and they'll bring it back. Oh, hey, yeah. Hey, do you remember that time? And I'm, Already I'm thinking, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they yeah. do. Every yeah. detail. They remember that stuff, and they'll it'll come back unfiltered, you know, uh -huh. it, often in opportune moments and unfortunate moments. Right, uh, exactly. But, no, they, I mean, I, I, I used to watch them uh, – they pay a lot of attention to everything that, you know, this is like they're, 
your little world where you're teaching your 30 minute lesson or your hour class, whatever, like they, they, I mean, I remember like going to, you know, class all through life, like going to class and you'd kind of like profile your teacher based on the kind of stuff they had hanging up and like, you sure would, yeah. you know, so like, you know, heed, heed the warning to teachers when you're decorating your classroom, like the kids are, or not. Yeah. Or not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The total institutional vibe. Right. Um, but that's a big deal. Like people, um, I mean, I think it's sad now, like, uh, you know, I always hate to see kids learning in environments that are really clinical and, you know, um, or institutional and, and uh, uh, just kind of cold and stark and nothing inspirational. I mean, it doesn't have to be like, um, you know, really decked out or anything. But to know that your teacher is interested in something, mm-hmm. you know, and like has some kind of personal style about whether there's going to be anything on the walls and what that is. Or, you know, kids are always, you can see, especially now, kids have so much exposure to, you know, everything in the world from, you know, the blast of media that they've got coming at them and the entire, you know, informational ecosystem is so wide open to them that you can see that they're hip and they're, you know, they've got great BS radar and they've got, um, they kind of got your number immediately unless you're something different. And sure. So being real is super important early on, I think. Um, and, uh, always, you know, my, the coolest people in my family always treated me like a, an adult, like, you know, your opinion matters. You know, they didn't want to hear what you had to say. Um, they, you know, don't act like a, don't act like, you know, we, like running around restaurants and stuff like that, not allowed in my family. Right. Like you were not allowed to run wild or anything like that. Um, and like grammar and spelling, like you get kicked out of the zebra tribe in my house, like for, yeah, <laughs> forget it. But that was the harshest thing that I, everything else was pretty much, <clears throat> they thought you were amusing. You know, they thought, mm-hmm. you know, my family, like the kids were the, the entertainment, you know, like we, we were the, I always felt like we were the stars of the show. Like, you know, my cousins and myself, we were always kind of. That's a that narcissism coming back. Totally. You. Oh, it's, it never goes away. I mean, we're, I mean, how much Am time, I not how much time do we have? Right. We're just getting started. I mean, I'm in a few minutes, I have my own questions, <laughs> <laughs> no. but it's true. I mean, like, I think the, um, the fact that they know that you're somebody, you know, you got your own style, your thoughts and that you give a crap what they think. And, yeah. you know, you might think. You know, you, you, if you, if you and a kid can share a joke and share like shtick and have, you know, kind of an adult style sure. conversation about stuff where it's not always you're the teacher, they're the student. And, um, I think it's a lot more fluid now. Like the, uh, teaching styles have probably changed and evolved since I've been in school. Lots of, not all of them, man. I'm doing the best I can, but there's, there's some, there's some holdouts still doing, you know, shut up, sit down. Yeah. I've got the big desk. You've got the small desk. That should tell you something. Or my, my drafting teacher, who's the anti teacher. He was the drill sergeant with right. the high and tight, uh, nice. where if you, we made a mistake. I mean, he is like, you know, the gulag being in that class, I man, every, and, if there's a class that you hated at, at that school, it was that class. And like the punishment there was, you know, if you got caught not looking at your T square, you know, or talking to somebody, he had uh, what he called the grapefruit up on his desk. And it was a shot put with a grapefruit skin on it. And if you got busted talking or whatever the thing, your infraction was, it, you had to stand for X minutes at the front of the class with a shot put out. You know, you weren't allowed to lower your arm. You weren't allowed to bend your arm. <laughs> and of course, I weighed like you know, eighteen pounds in seventh grade. <laughs> They're gonna make a man out of you with this. Yeah, <laughs> turn you into totally, a learner. Totally shameful. Because you know, obviously, my drafting career was going to suffer as an engineer. So yeah, um, 
but that, that kind of thing, it's weird. Like I always, um, I've said that I've worked for bosses out in the, in the career world, Mm -hmm. like a a really horrible dogmatic boss, like a really stern boss or what people are like an a-hole of a boss. I'm like, um, I understand, like I can always easily work for those people or work with those people because I understand them. Um, it's not particularly pleasant, but if you don't let that rub off on you, you can be okay. Sure. But those people are usually really clear. They're really clear about their communication. They want this and they want it this way, you know? Um, so that, like, I understand that teacher, uh, and I do remember his name, but I'm not going to say it, but, um, I understood him and it's weird by the end of my, you know, when I went on to the next grade or, you know, I, I, I think I, that was a one year, like two semester class. Sure. Um, like he, we kind of liked each other by the end, sure. you know, and I was the opposite profile and he was the opposite profile of, you know, liking each other as teacher student. But, um, those, those people don't stand out to me as effective teachers really. I mean, I ended up, ended up learning a life lesson from him and learning how to, you know, get along with all kinds of people. Um, but I didn't really learn much in his class and I wasn't focused at all on the, the curriculum or anything. I was focused on, you know, not being terrified of him. Sure. Yeah. I'd say what's interesting is is that there there are some personality types and and you know and 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 of course my classroom typically has been very different than others and and it should be because I'm a very different person there should be very different for me and that's what we mean by teaching authentically and being real in terms of who you are but there is this um, personality of teacher out there and it sounds like he was close but it wasn't right where I've I've worked with some really uh, this gruff and short. And, um, and precise in their communication with kids and direct and they were not nurturing and they weren't friendly and they weren't funny, but you know what? They were exactly who they really, that's who they really were. And they loved those kids Yeah, and they would tell them. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, but they, 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 they did not smile. There were no antics. There was no, um, you know, uh, entertaining component to their class, but the fact that they just loved them. Yeah, and they worked hard for them. You know what? That that, that is not to say about that teacher that I'm talking. That's not to say he didn't care about doing a good job. Right. Yeah. He was a hundred percent about doing a good job and doing his job. He was militaristic about it, uh-huh. and he cared. I mean, he wouldn't be in that. I mean, it wouldn't just a whatever. I'm not trying to undermine him as a teacher, but I, I would choose a different style. Like yeah, that, yeah, know, whatever. And and there's some people can pull that thing off. It's really who they are, you know. And and certainly what works for them is going to work for me, and and vice versa. Yeah. Well, the dynamic part of it, like you, you say, I said, like a, a different personality every thirty minutes, every forty five minutes or an hour, you've got thirty five kids coming in with all those different personalities. That's like I haven't been in that pressure cooker except for student teaching, right? And which and student teaching choir, right? Which is not you know algebra. No. And you've already eliminated a whole bunch of personalities. Yeah. Because they don't have to be there; they want to be. They're there. the elective, exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, and, and hey, that man, let's let's spend our last couple of minutes. Let's let's find about the music business because here's here's what I know. Isn't it, isn't it true, sir, that, um, so the music business and who we hear on the radio and those people that have been selected to become stars by labels, that, I mean, they're not really the most talented. Isn't that true? Would you, would you? Well, I mean, I would say. It's a simple yes or no question, sir. Cinder, I don't recall. Uh, No, I mean, I think it's just, well, the, the music on the whole is completely changed. Yeah. Um, so the technology I mean, everything's been democratized, and with the advent of digital audio, that was the beginning of an entire paradigm shift. Which is all this is all obvious to anybody who's not under a rock. But um, 
I work with, I am a content creator and I work with content creators and I'm a producer and I mix. Um, I don't really write and I don't really compose and do my own thing anymore, but I'll compose a bridge for the song that, that I'm producing for this album or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's the extent of my composing is what I call uh, seagull composing, just flying in quickly and dropping my load of information on this part of the song. You know? <laughs> um, but no, the business is completely reinvented. Um, what I would describe it as is that the, the soil has been tilled. And one of the things that, what I would take issue with is that uh, it's not that labels anoint, you know, artists anymore. That's a very kind of nineties. Um, I would even isolate it even closer. The, the model that you're talking about, you could more uh, associate with the, post compact disc mm -hmm. era of music post MTV. So MTV and compact discs, um, labels all of a sudden had a way for you to spend 15 bucks to buy an album that you already had. So I bought my third copy of Sgt. Pepper. Right. Right. Um, and then that, so there was MTV, which is a huge boost temporarily to, and it broke a bunch of bands. Right. So selling, new artists on a new medium and then selling the old catalogs of established artists on a new medium. So getting your, you know, replacing your cassette or vinyl uh, Beatles collection with compact disc because it's the new best thing. Yeah, box set, baby. I mean, there was a lot of money floating around in the musical ecosystem then. And, then. and um, that's not the case now. Um, the revenues for people purchasing individuals, purchasing music, uh, my personal belief, and I think the, the data, bear this out is that access by subscription like the Spotify and right. streaming services is, I mean, the genie's out of the bottle. That's the way it's going to be. Um, and when you go home and watch something on your DVR tonight, you can argue with me about it, but uh, <laughs> that's the way it's going to be. Um, um, so I'm one of those rare, you know, I'm a content creator. I'm also a fiduciary and officer of the Recording Academy, and I'm also a Spotify subscriber. But what's interesting is, like, I listen to the bands that I've either produced or mixed or whatever on Spotify. I also listen to stuff that instead of, you know, I've got whatever, 800 CDs that I've bought and rebought over the years mm -hmm. that sit on a wall. And those that I haven't digitized yet out of the thousand of them that I've never got into my iTunes library. Right. Um, I don't want to, you know, I don't have, there's not enough years of my life left to digitize all the music that I've got. So, like, them getting extra money from me, you know, if I want to listen to uh, a band that whose CD I bought in 89 or 92 or 95 or 2001 or whatever it was, if I want to hear them now, I'm not going to go grab the CD and rip it, you know, right. I just see if they're on Spotify and listen to it there. Yeah. Um, I, I try to stop short of listening to um, ad-free, royalty-free stuff, stuff that's just posted on Facebook, I mean, on uh, YouTube that's not, um, doesn't have an ad that, because those ads actually do generate revenue. Um depending on which one you're talking about and which mm -hmm. one you're looking at. But the point is um, the revenue pie is much smaller. Yep. Um, so to even the revenue pie uh, of touring, you know, that component of um, selling your merchandise on tour. Um, we're really in a new – to answer your question, no, they're not the best. So back, in, back when that was the model, the people that got anointed as the best were not the best. And I can sure. tell you from my experience with radio people – um, I mean, I've attended radio call-out tests where, you know, they market test a single. Right. And, you know, I've, I've actually talked to a couple of vice presidents of the two primary companies that um, Clear Channel used to use to, or, or the radio companies used to use to, to test, you know, to focus group music. 
they make the devices and the the data feeds that you can buy to to see how it went and uh, to get the results. And what you're talking about is a phenomenon that goes like this. If the dial goes from 0 to 5 or 0 to 10, they play you the hook of a song. You know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, maybe 30 seconds tops. Right. So the, you know, verse into the bridge or the verse into the hook. Um, And you're supposed to dial up, you know, throttle up. I like this a little. I like this a lot. And through their research and their infinite strange logic, they would pick the stuff. You never, they never pick the stuff that scores high. Of course, they don't pick the stuff that scores low. They pick the stuff that scores in the middle because it offends the least people and it'll attract some of the people from the high end and you just leave off the stuff at the bottom. So, um, scary. Yeah. I mean, that's the way, I mean, I can't say that every radio entity right. did it that way, but that's basically the way it that worked. was a the theory back then. That's the, it's the safest path. It's the path of least resistance. That's how we program. Yeah. And, and you know, and man, you know, the reason I bring this up is because what I see is right now for a musician, um, I smell a Grammy question about uh, are the people that win Grammys really the most talented? Obviously they are. And I welcome that question. <laughs> Senator, Senator I, I w- yeah. I'm always, you know, the, the Grammy for me is nothing but a big realization of how out of the loop I am because people win and I've never even heard of this oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. And so, um, but here's, here's, here's my point is, um, I think, um, we are, um, I'm very, I don't like the music business, but what I am excited about right now is the opportunity for what I would call like a musical artist entrepreneur who really can get, even they don't have to have a great handle on it, just a little bit of a handle on the power of the social media, a power of what they can create in their home. What, what their own distribution model that they can create right now, and and if somebody and you know this is all assuming they they've got the chops and and they're and, and they're good, and somebody really can create something an amazing business of their own, just with 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 their own art without what they've needed in the past. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's it's democratized in that way, and there's good news and bad news about that. I mean, the good news is you don't you honestly don't need. A label anymore you don't need yeah. i mean the, the there's a lot of country i mean te- this whole texas country artist touring around i mean they've tour buses trailers putting on huge productions oh, yeah. Yeah. road crew selling their own merch selling their own cds right there at the show making yeah. and and they're making a living yeah i mean now they can do it with you know square readers on their ipad and their phone yep. they got a merch person out there um I mean, the, the way I put it now is um, all those monoliths that used to stand between you and your success, um, and back when you hoped as a band to get a, a big payday, you know, as an advance, which is really a sharecropper's deal to produce some product, and then you know, there's no guarantee you're going to have success. But um, having seen friends go through, um, and myself go through varying degrees of failure or success with major labels, um, it's interesting to see you. they're not necessary anymore. You don't need them. Um, they are... You can see the hyper aggregation that's going on um, to where there's really essentially a couple of labels now. Yep. Um, and you know, I'm not maligning labels. I don't really care so much about it. What I care about is like I work with artists that are going to self distribute. You know, with the means that are out there now. So the long and short of that is, um, you don't need all these these um, monolithic kind of things between you and success to get distribution and to get heard and get promoted and all that. The good news is. Um, you can do all that yourself. The bad news is you have to do all that yourself. So um, you do have to be up on it and be savvy about how to use social media and how to use the correct distribution partners and models and um, technology. Um, 
because there's a lot of ways to go wrong doing that. But at least now, if you're smart enough to do it right, you have control over how much, you know, how many people hear. You don't have to release a whole album. You use two, three songs at a time, or you can release 15 at a time or one at a time. Right. And kind of build um, my, one of the big pundits that I read, uh, Bob Lefsitz, um puts it this way. is like used to, and still some labels will take an artist every now and then and blow up a giant fireworks display. Like, everybody come look at this artist. And everybody knows that the shelf life is as long as the fireworks are falling out of the sky, right? Mm-hmm. But they draw as many eyeballs there as they can, and they hope that it sticks for as long as it can. Um, and that model still gets played occasionally. But the real paradigm shift is that the primary model now is not a fireworks display to get as much people at once. It's a bunch of people independently putting landmines out there of their content. So you and I doing a song you know, in Pro Tools at the shop and releasing it, um, all it has to do is be good or have somebody like it, and eventually somebody it's out there in perpetuity, like it's out there on the internet forever. Yep. So all it takes that's a landmine. So if you if you steadily put out content, people can forever. There'll be if somebody likes something that you did and stumbled upon it, and they they that guy's great. I'd like to hear what else he's got. That's how things can go sort of slowly viral, and so forever there's these eternal you know, perpetual landmines of your content that stay out there. And that's very encouraging to see what can happen over time because yeah. now we're in a different, it sort of goes back to post AM radio, single driven um, record sales to remember when FM came along and uh, I'm talking about how old we are now, right. but you know, the way it changed to where all of a sudden you had a Sherpa, a guide that was showing you, Here's what's cool, and let's play the album tracks, you know, the, right. deep, the deep cuts. And we're not going to play the because the singles were all top forty. I mean, they were selling zit cream, you know. So mm-hmm. like, it became more about hey, if you listen to this station and this particular jock on this station, right, he'll turn you on to the fifth track that's in the middle of this record. Right, right. the jock know? was the guy. He was yeah. breaking bands. You know? Sherpa, yeah, he liked totally. him. Yeah, and then so here it is, man. Let's 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 wrap this thing up with the Grammy question. So how does how does somebody win a Grammy? It's um, that's easy. It's really democratic, and I'll tell you, um, there are plenty of people that win and get nominated that I'm not hip to at all. And I'm a I'm a voting member and I'm an officer. So, um, so like the ballot comes out, you got to bone up on this stuff pretty quick. You do. I mean, you you get a. Fortunately, everything's online now, so when you get your ballot, um, uh, I should say for the record, a lot of people don't know this that um, just I like to explain about the Grammys about the Recording Academy. Um, it's a trade organization and it's a nonprofit. So. You join to be a member, uh, and you could be an associate member if you're like a graphic artist or something like that, uh, or if you've got the credits, you can be a voting member. So if you have, a, an, if you meet a threshold of performance credits or production credits, you can be a voting member, and that's how I joined. I joined as just a rank and file member. You pay your dues once a year, and you get the opportunity to vote on the Grammys, and you can also get the opportunity to purchase tickets to go to the Grammys if you want. Um, so the Grammys, uh, the Recording Academy itself, is a five hundred one c six nonprofit um and but then we have these other arms that are 501c3s so there's the grammy foundation and mm-hmm. there's music cares so if there's a hurricane or fires or whatever and any band instruments replaced um music cares goes after that or when um any way that um the recording academy wants to take care of its own uh take care of you know uh, flood hits nashville preservation of music mm-hmm. um uh, my friend Chuck Rainey, uh, legendary bass player, played with Steely Dan. His house burned down, and um, Music Care stepped in to help him, and um, that kind of thing. Um, and the Grammy Foundation does the um, preservation of music, musical archiving, that kind of thing, and advocacy. So to protect 
content creators from not getting paid royalties. Like when Pandora wants to pass a bill that says we'd like to pay less in royalties because right. it just costs us too much. Uh, we're the guys that go up to Capitol Hill and say, no, that's not going to happen. Um, so I take a lot of pride in that. And um, the Grammys get a lot of flack for being all about the Golden Statue and Beyonce and whatever. But right. um, this, the, the awards is one thing that we do. And um, the, how you win one. Uh, and which I've never won one, but I do have a good, good friend two Well, three friends who are Grammy winners and, uh, it's purely democratic. They rank and file that pay their dues and have voting credentials, get a Deloitte ballot. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's two rounds. There's a round, uh, people submit their work and we all review that in aggregate. We are out there in the market and we go online, listen to all the samples and the, it's a to be nominated round right so when you make that first cut it's a huge honor to make that cut because then you're a nominee and that's a first tier very high cachet thing you've been nominated for the highest award you know from, right. from your peers um if, the, if i mean some people don't believe in competition in music at all and uh that's a huge debate that um i think there's there's credence on both sides of the argument but um uh being i think well, i put it this way nobody really cares about you know, they'll complain about Grammys and they're fake and they don't care until they're nominated or they're about to be. And then suddenly they're very interested <laughs> about how it works. I love this. Uh, so, um, but there's a lot of sort of, you know, supposed or presumed, you know, skullduggery that goes on like with the Academy Awards and with the, the Grammys. Mm -hmm. And I can't speak to the Academy Awards, um, but you get a Deloitte ballot and you listen to the stuff online and you're urged to, you're not allowed to just, uh, I mean, there's no, it's purely democratic. It's a, it's a paper ballot that you have to send it back in the Deloitte envelope It goes to Deloitte uh -huh. and they control it. So nobody knows who's winning. Um, the only way that you can game the system is by whatever means you've managed to get as much exposure as possible so that your, uh, name recognition is very high. Right. And so if the, the guy who's not voting responsibly just says, well, I recognize the Avid brothers, I'll vote for that, you know, right. or whatever, or Taylor Swift or whatever the thing is. Um, I'm trying to be fair in the names that I drop. Like, who's good and who's bad? Um, <laughs> but I mean, uh, you you can do that. So you've done a, a good job of raising your profile or your label has or whatever. Right. Um, but, but are people campaigning at this point when a ballot comes out? Are you getting an email all of a sudden with yeah, a link to it? We have our own social network called Grammy365.com, uh -huh. uh, and we actually had to um, this year we had to implement a uh, an opt out. Like I'm not going to receive any friend requests or emails during nomination season right. so that you wouldn't get solicited, but you are allowed to solicit. You can't mention what category and what the field, what the field you're in or what the category number is. Right. Um, but you can say, Hey, I've got a record that's being considered. Will you please give it a listen? That's okay. So you can campaign in that way. Um, but when it comes down to it, it's a vote that goes out. <clears throat> I just sent mine in last week. Um, and, uh, I will be sitting in the audience when I see if my people, that I voted for one or not. You can be, uh, do you have your scorecard? I think, uh, you know, really, I, I used to, uh, <laughs> it's embarrassing. Because, because I know you, how you think, knowing you, you're going to, you're going to sit there and when your guy doesn't win, you're going to think, I can't believe they got that one wrong. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm always the taste police. Like, I don't know what they're talking about. Right. Uh, no, I mean, I don't have any dogs in the fight. So, like, if, if I had an album that I've worked on that I, you know, tried to get nominated, um, you know, you're not supposed to just vote because you worked on it. But if right. you, a lot of people do because they really believe in the records that they worked on. So that's the only way they can get kind of internal. But it's really hard to control the the voting membership at large. I mean, you can't do that. I mean, yeah. it would take a it would take a conspiracy that we're not capable of to do that. 
So it's purely democratic. And what happens is we vote. Um, I can tell you at the, at the governance level, um, the way we determine categories, like you know, how many Latin American music f- categories there are or subcategories, um, that can get controversial when we go up for our um, trustee meetings because that's where that kind of stuff is decided. Like how many records were submitted in the Norteño category, right? And it has to meet a certain threshold to make the ballot. Right. So you've got to you've got to have enough steam behind your genre, yeah. your your category or subcategory, to get on the ballot. You know, to even be considered. So that is the only way that you can get sort of blocked out of the system. But that's really up to you. If you and your buddies that all do polka music, you know, or a specific region of uh, Polish polka music, then right. you can do. You, know, you you sign them up. Tell you, man, if them. you want to win a Grammy, I think there it is. You just find that niche and you just put out as as much polka as you can put out in a Absolutely. year. You're, just to increase your odds. The narrower the niche, right. But the more, but the more buddies from your niche that you get to join as voting members, right. <laughs> then that's the only way you can game the system. But I can tell you that is a long slog, right. a hard slog. All right, last thing, brother, before we uh, part ways, give me uh, three bands. Three musicians. Well, you well, of course you do. Three, three, three new ones that maybe people have heard of, maybe they haven't. Three, somebody new that that people need to hear, people need to listen to, just get exposed to new music that they might not have heard. Yeah, from anywhere. Give me number one is. In, um, no, in, I, in I, no particular order, yeah, sir. No particular order, because that's impossible. And I'm terrible. Like I, I can't even give you my ten desert album. Island, well, de- desert either. island albums. I can't do that. No. Um, but I mean, there's a guy named Billy Harvey. Billy Harvey, number one. Yeah, great friend, uh, great producer, great guitar player, super cool guy. Lives in L.A. now. He used to be in Austin. Uh, produced Bob Schneider and a bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, Pick up some Billy Harvey. He's amazing. He's um, uh, I'm going to go kind of Texas friendly here. Do it. Um, uh, and I'm trying to pick people that you might not have heard. Um, I would say, oh, this is tough. This is really tough. I'm going outside of people that I work with. Uh-huh. Um, well, I'll, put, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll not do that. If you like hard rock, yeah. there's a band that I produce here in, called Black Queen Speaks from Houston that are like, straight up unabashedly just doing rock and roll and they're great um say the name of that again black queen speaks black queen speaks yeah i they like just, it. they just opened for slash this year at mm-hmm. house of blues and um they just do like this straight up unabashed unashamed rock and roll that's just got the swagger that used to have and they're really good um billy harvey is a lot more kind of uh Singer songwriter kind of guy. All right, here's a big one. It's big. No, this is the finale. Come in strong with this one. Here we go. With the third one? Yeah, let's go. I don't know, man. Um, hmm. This is tough. I'd be excluding so many people. I don't know. I mean, you're gonna let me down on the finale. Well, now I'm going through all this. You know, I'm databasing everything. Like, should I go for you know a different genre or people I have worked with or I have not worked with? Um. I don't know. I listen to weird crap, like when I'm not producing. Right. So um, I'm always kind of listening to obscure either stuff from way back in the past or Afro-Cuban music or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm trying. Basically, when I'm working on music, I'm listening to stuff that doesn't. All right, sound I don't make it easy whatever. for you because yeah. I, I can I can feel your pain. You're writhing over there. This Here is it is. A tough thing. Give me something that you've recently heard that's popular that you think is good that you like. 
Oh, I thought Adele's 21 was a staggeringly good record, and she deserved everything she got out of it. Me too. Uh, I'm with you. She and the producer, both, everybody. And and her production team, her um, her road production team, great job of controlling the experience around her and not making her star too inaccessible and whatever. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you this. There's a lot of people I don't listen to all the time, mm-hmm. but uh, have won Grammys you know, like the year that, that Beyonce raked in all the... You know, it was three years ago. Right. Um, she's, you know, my, my friend Dan has recorded her and engineered and played with her and, and done these big records with her. And the guys that have worked with talent like that, whether you like that kind of stuff or not, they'll tell you, you know you have somebody amazing in the studio oh, yeah. when they've got that much sauce. So there's a lot of people, I mean, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, I, I can't tell you who to listen to. Uh, I am a terrible musical guide because, like I said, my main goal when I'm not, under the headphones working uh-huh. is I try to listen to stuff that doesn't sound like what I'm working on. So I, I'll listen to just really weird stuff or I'll just listen to t- NPR, you know? Right. I mean, I'm that guy. I mean, yeah. uh, it takes a lot for me to go see new bands, like um, somebody that I trust is really tell me about a band uh, mm-hmm. or I stumble on them by going to see a band that I like. Right. Um, but I don't go see a ton of bands anymore. It's like my, my hearing and my time are just too, you know, I don't have enough of either. Right to go see a bunch of live music all the time, but I, I try to. Um, uh, I I can't fill the third slot. Um, you did, man. Tough. No, you did. I mean, that's somebody somebody that's got a lot of accolades. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Adele had an incredible. Yeah, year. I, dude, I, I, I totally agree. She's amazing, amazing, amazing talent. Amazing. All right, person. brother. Listen, I appreciate you being in here today. My pleasure, man. Awesome. My giant cranium and all. Yeah, we had to change lenses to fit that thing in there. I know, I know. But dude, we uh we uh we we appreciate you sharing your uh, stuff, sharing your story, and uh, thanks so much. We'll do it again, man. My pleasure. We'll do it anytime. Awesome. Yeah. Take care, brother. Okay. You too. That was my job. Oh, I thought you were gonna clap. Hey, but well, you got to start it. I was gonna finish it. <laughs>